Good morning and welcome to ASL's HR in 10 at 10. I'm Jason Perry and I'm Kimberly Bradshaw and we're both HR professionals and every week get together to talk about what's going on in the employment law and HR world. So Kimberly, I kind of think we have to start with Boris's big announcement. Yes, increases to the national insurance contribution for both employees and employers. Yes. That, not a surprise, I think. You mm. know, there has to be some recovery from all the payouts that the government's made to help support the country through the crisis. But, you know, I think it was a bit out of the blue at the same time. Yeah, I... I'm always very cautious on these to try, let's say, not to do the politics and to uh, uh, kind of stick with the uh, employment law side, HR side. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose I would might say another increase in national insurance because the bit that I think the general public don't see is the employer's tax. Whatever increase they're paying in their wages, your employer is also paying too. And it, it's a huge amount on employers at what is a difficult time. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering how difficult this is for employers to implement because modern payroll systems often make this very easy, don't they? Yes, uh, but uh, you know, a lot of the clients that I work with on a local basis, for example, they tend to do it, you know, the old-fashioned way, and then send the data to the accountant who has the payroll system. Not everybody has a payroll system in place. Yes. Uh, so, although, you know, it obviously has to be digital, but um, I don't know, I think there's going to be some confusion out there about the calculations and that kind of thing. Yes, and we have a couple of new national insurance rates, I think, are creeping in, because, for example, there's going to be people who are of retirement age that are working will now pay the additional uh, 1.5%. It is one and a half, isn't it? Not one and a quarter. I'm just having a brain fade moment. Um, yeah, I think you're right. It's because the other one is 1.25%. Yes. Um, but the uh, that's going to have to be paid even if somebody is of retirement age but working. So we're going to have some new national insurance levels, a bit like we have the apprenticeship one at the moment, to make sure you categorise people correctly. Yes, and I think, you know... Potentially, again, it's, I'm not saying anything political, I'm just speaking out loud, you know, is it a little bit more palatable than increasing income tax, for example? Well, I, 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 I kind of... the same, almost. Well, it is, but the difference is it would take a 2.5% increase on income tax to achieve the same because of the employer's burden. And I think that's why NI is arguably an easy target. But it's kind of one of those facts... It's happening. It's happening in April next year, so we need to get used to it. One of the other things from our perspective as a recruitment provider is it means the cost of temps is going up again. Um, and that's always difficult when people use these for that last bit of their labour that they need flexibility on. And the cost burden on that is going up again as it's going to be perceived. So it's there we have to deal with it. I, I kind of thought while we were talking about national insurance and such like things, uh, there was a lovely article you sent to me a couple of weeks ago that I, I thought we ought to share in here, which were some of the best excuses for not paying the national wage, national minimum wage. Uh, yes. 
I don't know if you've got a copy of it to hand, but I've got a list of ten, and I thought I might pick a couple of my favourites. Oh, do. And I, if you haven't mentioned it, I'll mention one of mine. Okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to start with this really good one, which was, she doesn't deserve the national minimum wage because she only makes teas and sweeps the floors. Yeah, that reminds me of my favourite one, which is um, I only pay people who are actually serving customers. When they're not serving a customer, they're on standby, so I don't pay them for that. Oh, yes, that was, that was yeah, that was one of my favourites as well. But I think my all-time favourite in this list, without running through all ten, was my accountant and I speak a different language. He doesn't understand me, and that's why he doesn't pay my workers the correct wages. So, yeah, they're almost as good as those um, insurance claim quotes that they used to issue. I don't know if they still do, but you know, the reason that my, I crashed my car is because a post box leapt in front of my car into the road. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you know what? I think I'm going to pass those lists of 10 excuses to Sarah, and I think I'm going to have a blog done on our, our, our website about it because they're good. So I'll yeah. work for us to do on that. Look, let's move on a little bit. Employment numbers. Um, we've been talking quite a bit over a few weeks over what's going on with the employment figures. And it's quite interesting because at the beginning of the pandemic, we were forecasting huge levels of unemployment. Um, you know, the government were talking about putting huge amounts of resource to support the unemployed and 12% unemployment was banded around. We've barely got over about 5 somewhere just to touch over 5%, I think, in, in terms yeah. of where it's settled. But redundancies right now, they're at the lowest level since pre-pandemic. Yes, I think that's quite phenomenal. If I think, I've got the statistics here, it's a planned job cuts in June last year was 155,000, just over, um, whereas now it's down to 12,600. Yes. So I think... What's interesting is there's been a lot of redundancy, so potentially everyone that was going to make redundancy before the end of furlough possibly has done now, yeah. which might bring the numbers down. And yet, at the same time, recruitment is an absolute nightmare. Absolutely. It, it's like finding hen's teeth, finding somebody to recruit. Yes, yeah. Well, uh, the, the phrase I've seen used a couple of times is furlough has achieved a soft landing. And as we phase it out, the need for it has almost, and I'm caught, I know there are some employers still struggling in particular sectors, um, but it has almost disappeared the need for it. And the labour shortage you're expecting to see, you, you, you make a really interesting point. Yesterday on the HR forum, I shared the figure that in the last week of August, I think it was, there was 1.3 million job adverts. I mean, that is huge numbers. And literally, whilst I was saying it, an email popped into me from Reed saying that in um, August, Reed had had over 300,000 live job ads on their site. Um, and huge numbers. And people just can't find the staff, can they? No, no. And, you know, certainly I, I was in a meeting yesterday and, and somebody was talking about the fact that they believe that's going to have a big impact on our recovery. Mm. You know, we've been predicted to have this phenomenal economic growth, second only to recovery from the Great Depression. Uh, and, um, you know, is that going to happen if people can't fill their jobs? We can't find the people. Recovery, yeah, exactly. And 
not being able to find people drives up salaries and that makes it more unaffordable, makes it more, you know, less cost effective for people, uh, employers. So I think, yeah, there's a lot rumbling around there that well, the, could the, be looked out for. Yeah, the CBI are suggesting we are going to have these labour shortages for about two years. Um, and the CIPD are kind of backing that. But they're going as far as to saying these problems predate Brexit and the pandemic. They were already in our economy and we just weren't dealing with them properly. And I, I, there's some fairly difficult questions here. I think they're political questions, in all honesty. And I think they're questions about training. They're questions about apprenticeships. And I might be as bold as to say they're questions about our benefit system. We have a problem that work needs to pay and people need to be better off in work than they are in benefits. And I think there's a political challenge there to balance that and make it happen. Yes, and as we've talked about before, the fact is that for some people it is better. They financially benefit from being on benefits, rather no pun intended there, uh, rather than actually going out to work. And that will be driving the recruitment uh, issues. Mm. Yeah, but I think it's about flexibility of the benefits as much as it is. And we see people who decline, and the, the worst cases, and I've seen repeated ones of these, where people decline temporary roles because they've got a meeting with a job centre advisor. And the job centre advisor has told them they cannot cancel it and they should not take work that day. Um, and there's a complete disconnect in some cases between the job centre advice, therefore, and you know, what the business sector needs in terms of flexibility to get labour. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. I think we've wrapped up the big challenge for the politics. Um, exactly. We... Sorted in 10. Absolutely. Um, this has been HR in 10 and we've spoken for 10 minutes, Kimberly, so we're kind of out of time. But uh, we will be back next week. Uh, thanks for watching and we will see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.